right. <laughs> uh, so we'll be continuing in our sermon series, Dust and Glory, the Imago Day, and what it means to be human. Uh, we started this last week, and we'll be going for a few more weeks uh, looking at what does it mean to be made in the image of God. That's what the Imago Day means. Uh, it's a, a Latin phrase for a doctrine teaching that we are made in God's image. So what does it mean to be made in God's image, and how does that affect uh, all of the issues that we find uh, very prevalent today in our culture and in our own lives about asking questions of what it means to be human? And so we're going to be in this for uh, a few more weeks as well, uh, and and, uh, picking up this morning. Last week we looked at creation, and uh, this week we'll be looking at what it means to be fallen. Well, uh, there's an NBA player named Dennis Schroeder. Uh, Maybe you've heard of him, maybe you haven't, Uh, but he's a 10-year veteran in the NBA. And a few years ago, he had a really good season uh, with the Oklahoma City Thunder, and he was actually named sixth man of the year, which means he's the the best first guy off the bench in the league. It's a pretty high honor, Uh, and it usually means you're going to get picked up by a different team and be a starter because you were the best guy on this bench, and that means you're better than lots of guys that are starting in the league, right? And that's exactly what happened to him, and he got picked up by the Lakers. And he had a decent season, uh, not a great season, but a decent season, and that summer they offered him a four-year, $80 million extension, which is a lot of money for a guy that most of us have never heard of. Uh, He turned it down. He turned down the extension and did what... Very many uh, athletes have done, they call it betting on themselves. He thought, I'll get more money somewhere else. So he turned it down. Bounced around the league the next couple of years with the Celtics and the Rockets. Didn't play great. And this year, he signed a one-year, $2.9 million deal with the Lakers. (laughs) Back to the Lakers. So he would have been making $20 million, but instead he may, is going to make $2.9 million, which all of us are like, hey, I'll take that. <laughs> I'll take the 2.9. It's fine. Uh, we don't need the 20. It's fine. 2.9. He's made about, uh, in his career, he's made about $77 million, which is not bad, right? That's pretty good. But he could have doubled that in this one contract and turned it down. Why would he do that? Why would you do that? Well, you see, he had something very, very good. But he thought to himself, I can get something better. I can get something better. If I just hold out a little bit, I can get something better. Well, this morning, I want to look at a story that has much bigger ramifications than Dennis Schroeder's NBA career. But it's a very similar situation in which we're going to look at what, is, what happens in the early chapters of Genesis after what we talked about last week, in which we are created in the image of God and how we, humanity, chooses to hold out for something better. Turning down something glorious for the temptation of something better, which ultimately isn't better. Uh, We looked at last week what it means to be made in God's image, created by God. And that makes us, as I said several times, more important than the very stars. The stars that God knows and placed in place, we as humans are made in his image and therefore more important 
in the universe than stars. And what then happens if that's the position for humanity? Why would you choose to abandon God and go any other direction? Well, it's a temptation for something greater, which really is how our sin functions in our lives, right? It's often because we're tempted to find satisfaction in something that promises something better versus what is right in front of us. So we're going to look at uh, Genesis chapter 3 this morning and, and kind of walk through some of these things about what it means to be dust and glory, fallen and yet still loved by God. All right, so Genesis 3. Let me try it again, see if it works. Nope, nope, not going to work. <laughs> all right, Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you will be like God knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. All right. So what do we got going on here? Right? Adam and Eve are in the garden. They have, uh, God has granted them, right? He, what did he say? You have every tree. It's all yours. You can have any of them. The whole earth is yours. Actually, in fact, you are to rule and reign over the earth. You are crowned with my image and you rule and reign over everything in the earth. You are to... Uh, Subdue it. You are to cultivate it. You are to care for it. You have all of those things. And then the serpent comes along and tempts Eve. And Satan really hasn't come up with any new strategies, and so this might actually seem very familiar to you in your own life. Satan's first attempt at Eve is to say, well, did God really say that you couldn't have that? I mean, did he really say that you couldn't have that? Why would God hold back something so beautiful and wonderful from you? Right? Isn't that how it sounds when Satan tempts us as well? Like, why would you hold back something good? God loves you. He wouldn't hold anything back from you. Did he really say that you shouldn't eat from that? Eve's first response is to say, well, yeah, no, he told us we shouldn't eat it. But do you see what Eve does? She actually makes the command more intense than it was. She, sa she says, wait a second, he said we shouldn't eat it or touch it. Well, God never said you shouldn't touch it. He just said you shouldn't eat it. Already he has placed, Satan has placed a little bit of doubt in Eve's mind that God is really holding back on her. He's really holding back some sort of wisdom that I should be able to get. He's holding out on me. There's something that I could get there. What I have is good, 
But I could get more. I could get more. And so, Satan then tells her a lie. No, you're not going to die. That's what God said. But you're not going to die. He actually knows that what you're going to do is be like God. Now, here's what's so interesting, right? Last week we talked a lot about the image of God. Made in the likeness of God. Eve's response should have been, wait a second, we're already like God. There's nothing else in the universe that is more like God than we are. Because we're stamped with His image. You see, Satan is tempting her with saying, you have this glorious thing, but you could be in the position of power and authority like God. You could determine those things. Not under Him, but next to Him. Look, you could get more. You could get more. Satan's strategy is still the same. He still works in the exact same way. Telling us to doubt God's word by pointing out that we are missing out. That God is somehow some cosmic killjoy. He just doesn't like us enjoying things. That's why he gives us these rules. And in fact, did he even give you that rule? Ah, probably not. And you could actually get something far better than what you can get by following God. So Eve's convinced her and Adam eat from the fruit of the tree. And then they instantly recognize that they are naked and they feel shame. They feel shame at their nakedness. Remember, we ended, or Genesis 2 ends by saying the man and his wife were together and they were naked and felt no shame. The, the writer in Genesis is keying in on something that happens immediately as a result of the fall, and that is shame. So, what then are the results of this? Let's look at what God's response is to these things, starting in verse three. Or sorry, starting in verse eight. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, "Where are you?" He replied, "I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked." Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, What have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. All right. So, immediately we see uh, a, a, a blaming happening very, very quickly, right? And we can look at this and say, All right, well... Adam, come on, man. Eve, come on. You guys got to own this. This is exactly what you and I would do in this situation, right? Right? It's like, uh, well, let's, let's just hide. We could hide, right? I mean, God only created the universe. He knows everywhere, where everything is. But we could probably hide. Let's just hide from him, right? That's the strategy. Let's hide from the Lord, right? And so when God comes and says, where are you? It's not because he doesn't know where they are or because he doesn't know what they did, he is actually giving them opportunity to respond and to repent. To respond to what they've done. And instead, what they do is blame each other, right? Adam immediately is like, well, Lord, it was your idea to make this woman. Like, that was your plan, your idea. It wasn't my fault. Like, it's her fault. 
And Eve is like instantly, well, wait, wait, wait. The serpent came along, right? Everyone is blaming and moving it to another spot instantly. But the reality is that they're guilty. The reality is that one of the results of this thing is that they are guilty, right? This isn't just a cosmic myth story. This is a real thing, and they have real guilt. Now, some of us, when we read this, we think, okay, God really is going to condemn humanity to death because they ate from a tree? Like, that seems pretty petty, right? Well, it's not really about the command. The command could have been anything. What it's about is what Satan tempted Eve with. You can be like God. Right? It was, the command was a simple command in order to ask Adam and Eve, will you be fully obedient to what I say? Will you submit to being made in God's image and not needing to be God? Will you be a creature and not be God himself? Will you not try to be God himself? Will you not seek to be God? This, friends, is no little thing. This is a very big deal. The reality is we often in our own lives see any breaking of God's commands as sort of this small, insignificant thing, right? Sometimes thinking that God is being petty. Like, why does he care about this part of my life? That's just a little petty. We think this is a pretty small deal because we don't actually think that God is as glorious as he truly is. If we saw God in all his glory, if we reckoned with who he is in his sovereign reign and rule and his creative power and majesty and all that he is, we would not think disobeying him is any small thing. The reality is, he is so glorious that any disobedience of this has to be as equally huge as his glory is, right? Any disobedience, even the slightest disobedience, is a complete betrayal because he is glorious and has commanded them to follow him. He created them. His holiness demands a response from their sin. All right, so there's real guilt. There's real guilt that happens. And so God responds by laying out some curses on humanity uh, and and on the globe. So let's look at those. Starting in 14. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains." By the sweat of your brow you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. Alright, so he lays out curses against 
uh, really in reverse order from uh, in which he asked Adam, right? He asked Adam, hey, what'd you do? Adam blames Eve, Eve blames the serpent, and God starts with the serpent and goes backwards uh, towards Adam. Starting with the serpent, he says, you are going to be crushed, right? Now, the serpent here represents Satan. This is Satan coming, right, in the form of a serpent to Eve. Uh, and so it's not really about snakes. It's about Satan, right? And God is going to, cr- although, you know, there's probably a reason why none of us like snakes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it seems like a, a fairly easy uh, logical conclusion there. Uh, but the serpent will be crushed. And we're going to look at this uh, a little bit later, but the curse here is Satan, you will ultimately lose. You will be crushed. Uh, to the woman, pain will come in childbearing, and there is a broken relationship with the man. And to the man, the earth is cursed, and there is pain in work. All of these curses actually affect the very thing that God had commanded Adam and Eve to do, right? He said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and cultivate it. Right? Or, or subdue it, depending on the translation you uh, are reading. But both, both of those mean the same thing. To cultivate and care for the earth. That's harder now. Right? The command is no different. Still be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and cultivate it. And yet, there will be brokenness and pain that comes along with it. Childbearing is painful. I don't speak from personal experience. But I have witnessed <laughs> ah, five of them. It is painful, right? That's a real thing that is a result of the curse. God is saying, you are going to continue to do what I've commanded you to do. But because of the sin that has now entered the world, there is real brokenness and pain that comes with obeying God. There's pain and childbearing. Relationships are broken now, Right? Remember last week we said one of the things about being made in God's image is that we are relationally oriented, right? We want relationship with God and relationship with one another. Now, those are broken. Our relationship with God is fundamentally broken. We're going to look at this in just one second here as humanity is banished from the garden. Our relationship with God is fundamentally broken. And our relationship with one another is fundamentally broken, right? This was... The man and the woman were together. They were one. They were naked and unashamed. And now there is conflict between the man and the woman. All human conflict, right, stems from this. We are broken relationally. For all of humanity, right, we're going to experience the reality of living in a broken world. Work is rewarding and good Feel called by God. We talked about this last week. One of the other things about being made in God's image, right, is vocationally called. God has given us work to do, to care and cultivate the earth. It's also super frustrating, right? Like, the smallest of tasks can be so incredibly frustrating. The earth doesn't do what we want it to do. Technology doesn't do what we want it to do. My career path doesn't take the way that it was supposed to take. It's not easy. Everything is more difficult. Everything feels like, oh, this could be glorious. Nope, it's broken still. It's still hard. It's still difficult. And ultimately, this curse lands in humanity being banished from the garden. 
Genesis 3, 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life, and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and He sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and He placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, I, I admit, when I first read this passage years ago, right, it just seemed really confusing. It's like, wait a second, why, why is the Lord preventing them from eating from the tree of life? Like, wh- what's happening here? Well, it seems very clear that what God is saying is that the tree of life, right, the tree of life, we're going to see this again when we get back to Revelation. It shows up again in Revelation. The tree of life functions here like a sacrament, like the Lord's Supper does for us. It sustains life for humanity. And so God does not want humanity to remain in its broken and fallen condition forever. So God banishes them from the garden to then start a process of redeeming them to come back to the tree of life. We're going to see this kind of loop back around and and see this theme come back around. But God banishes them from the garden both as a punishment, for sure, of their, uh, of their sin, but also as a hope to not keep them in this broken and fallen state. He says, we're going to move you out of the garden. I also don't think that this phrase, in terms of, look, the human beings have become like us, I actually think this is God speaking with a little bit of sarcasm, uh, kind of like he does with the, uh, the Tower of Babel, right? Oh, Look at this big tower that you guys built. Let me come down and look at it, right? Meaning, this is really small, right? Oh, the humans have become like us now. No, not really. Not really. They just have experienced the reality of their sin. They have experienced the reality of their sin. And so God banishes them from the garden. But also we're going to see some promises that God is going to give them here in a moment. So, We have seen that there is real guilt and there is real curses that come. There is also real brokenness that comes from this moment. Everything is broken. The beauty of creation is still beautiful and yet it's broken. We should expect, as we look in the universe, in the created order, we should expect to see beauty. Glimpses of perfection and design and thriving, right? The ideal of Genesis 1 and 2. We should expect to see that as we look in the world. And we should also expect to see brokenness, disorder, disruption, things not working the way they're supposed to be, disorientation, complication, all of those things. We should expect to see everywhere because of this act of Adam and Eve. Because of the fall. The reality is, uh, I don't know if you've heard of, uh, there's lots of uh, apologetic arguments for the faith, right? And so these are defenses of the faith. So one of these uh, is uh, the uh, fine-tuning argument. To say, well, the universe is so incredibly fine-tuned to human existence, it has to be designed, right? Because if you move the globe in just a certain way or shift its angle or any of these things, human life isn't possible to exist. That's true. And yet, also, sometimes we can overplay that to, to 
recognize also, hey, this world doesn't also function like it was super well designed sometimes, right? Like sometimes it's like, oh, things are really broken. That's also true, right? We see this from Genesis. God has designed the universe to function and to, for human life to thrive. He's designed the universe for us, His creation, made in His image, to thrive in this place. So we should see evidence that as we look around, that we were made to be here. And yet, because of the fall, we should see evidence that says, wait a second, things are kind of jacked up, right? Like, things are kind of just missing. Things are broken. Things don't work exactly right. So many of the challenges that we face today as Christians when it comes to ethical issues around what it means to be human, things that we're going to talk about in a few weeks when we get to that sermon that kind of addresses some of those things, what it means to be human, some of the challenges that we face in that and the difficulty for Christians engaging meaningfully in these conversations is not remembering both the creation and the fall. The reality that we are created in the image of God, that God has created us with an ideal to to thrive in relationship with Him, and yet, because of the fall, we are all profoundly broken. It would help us a lot if we remember that framework when we engage in conversations around any of these ethical issues because it will help us know things are actually a lot more complicated. They're just not simple. We should expect that things are going to be complicated because the universe is broken, profoundly broken. Our theology understands the difficulty of feeling this brokenness in the world. When people experience things, when people feel disconnected, when people uh, have felt disconnected, whether through relational pain or abuse or trauma or mental or emotional challenges, we should understand that and say, yeah, we get that. Because of our theology of both creation and the fall. We're made to experience these glorious things. And yet, because of the fall, we experience a lot of pain and brokenness. Current debates that exist around sexuality and gender and the difficulty of of people experiencing uh, desires or self-identities that are complicated and outside of what we see in the creation account, we should not be surprised by that. We should actually expect that we would struggle with those pieces because of the brokenness that has been created in the fall, right? We should actually expect, especially because the way in which things break is not uh, like a one-to-one to to your sin, right? Uh, I'm going to talk about this in a moment when we get to, to talking about shame. But one of the things that is really unique about this account, right, is that Adam and Eve sin by eating the tree, or eating from the tree, and then they experience shame at their nakedness, which has nothing to do with how they sinned, right? They, they didn't sin in any way related to that, but what sin does is it just fractures and breaks everything. So we should expect that we will see and experience things that aren't one-to-one related to my specific sin, like I sinned or my parents sinned, and, and therefore I experienced this. no. Everything's just broken and fractured. So we should see that fracture show up in places uh, that are unexpected, perhaps. We should expect that to be the case because of 
the fall. Which means our first foot forward in any of these conversations has to be one of pausing, listening, caring, and trying to understand what's complicated about life. Things are very incredibly complicated because every person that you talk to, including you, is made in God's image and is glorious and more important than the stars and profoundly broken. That means we got to take time to listen to people's story, hear their experiences, actually engage in learning from them about their own experiences, listening. And we should also come with a lot of empathy and loving care because the world is broken and things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And we understand that from God's word. And so we can show up and understand and say, we, we want to hear and listen because our theology can handle the nuance and complications and difficulty of any and all human experience. Creation and fall helps us to see this. We have dignity, value, and worth, and we experience brokenness. None of us, not a single one, is in the state of the ideal of creation with Adam and Eve. We're all post that. We're all post that. We all experience the fall and brokenness. It all looks different, but we experience it all. We all experience brokenness. Okay, another result of the fall here is shame. Is a prominent feature in the midst of this story. They experience shame. They hide from God. Immediately, they're hiding from God. That's shame at work. And the shame, as I already said, in this instance, at least as it's called out in this text, is misplaced from where their sin is, right? They should experience very real guilt. God said, don't do this, and we did it. We should experience guilt about that and then go to God and repent, right? That's why God says, hey, where are you? Come, come talk to me. But instead, they feel shame about something unrelated. They feel shame about something that God had declared to be good, their bodies. This here should help us recognize and know that lots of people, maybe us ourselves, struggle with our bodies, our mental health, our body image, destructive habits that we have, destructive addictions, all of these things, right? So many of these things are related to brokenness that we've experienced in life and come from places where we're like, I don't get it. Well, Adam and Eve had the same experience, right? They sinned in this way, and then they felt brokenness and shame in this way. It's a result of the fall. Now, we're going we're gonna to look at here in just a second like what to do with that, but we should understand that shame is coming here as a result of the fall. The lies and destructiveness of shame has its origin here. It's not, I did wrong. Their shame says, I am wrong. I no longer have the image of God in me. I can't go before God. I have to run and hide away. And if I can't run and hide away, let me sew together some fig leaves, at least so that I can be a little bit more presentable. That's what we do in our lives. All the time. We sew together anything that will hide the shame rather than go to God with our pain. 
It's why we run to all sorts of destructive habits. It's also why we run to not even destructive habits, but anything that can distract us away from dealing with the reality of pain that we experience. From dealing with the deepest, darkest, most painful things that we've experienced or thoughts that we've had or things that we've gone through, any of those things, we want to shove those away, cover ourselves with fig leaves, hide in the corner, and not listen when God says, where are you? We want to run away. We want to run away. It's not the way it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to feel worthless. We're supposed to know that we're more important than the stars. That we are the pinnacle of God's creation. So if you've ever experienced shame, the Bible sees you. One of the things that I am profoundly um, shaped by constantly is that the biblical storyline like the reason I continue to follow Jesus is because I believe he actually walked out of the tomb right physically he walked out of the tomb which means he gets to say whatever he wants about my life that's kind of the end all be all but one of the other reasons why I continue to follow Jesus is the more I look in the scriptures the more and more it makes sense of my reality doesn't sugarcoat it doesn't just say, no, 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 everything is good if you would just stop experiencing shame. No, it says the fact that you experience shame, that, that's just what's going to happen because of the fall. It rightly identifies exactly what our human experience is. We experience these types of things. We experience this type of shame. The truth of the scriptures. That's the story that God is telling us which is why we should expect that it would be true here. It makes sense of our reality. Certainly it's not saying that God has declared it to be good. Just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean that God is saying, hey, I'm okay with shame, right, just because it's in there. No, it's just describing what is actually in here, in the world, what's actually here because of our sin. But you know what? Nowhere in this spot, in these curses, in this guilt, in this shame, Nowhere here does it say, and therefore Adam and Eve, God took the image of God from Adam and Eve. He banished from the, them from the garden and took away his divine stamp. No. Still made in God's image. In fact, God gives incredible promises in the midst of these things. Let's look back at Genesis 3.15. In the curse of the serpent, God says this, And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is the first instance of the gospel in the scriptures. Of the good news that God is going to one day make all things right. This is a promise that is threaded throughout all of scripture. At any point you find yourself in the story of Scripture, you can look and see that Israel, God's people, if you're in the Old Testament, the church, God's people in the New Testament, wherever you're at, is looking and waiting to see, is this the one who will crush the serpent? Is this the one who's going to do it? We are experiencing the pain of the fall, right? Paul says in Romans that the very earth itself groans with the pains of the fall. 
natural disasters, all sorts of uh, mishaps that happen in the universe. All of these things are a result of the fall. Groaning as a result of the fall. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. And God says, I will one day crush this. And in the midst of crushing it, He will also be struck. You see, the way in which I'm going to crush it is actually be crushed by it. The way in which God comes in promising the Gospel here is to be crushed in the person of His Son Jesus on the cross. And in that, disarm and destroy Satan and promise all new things. And promise forgiveness for real guilt. Real guilt that we experience. Ways in which we have disobeyed God by not doing what He told us to do in thought, word, and deed. And doing what He told us not to do in thought, word, and deed. Real forgiveness offered to us in the cross. That strips away any of the accusations that Satan can do. He can't come and accuse you of anything if you're in Christ because your sin has been dealt with. God has dealt with your guilt. Ultimately, God will deal with your brokenness and your pain. One of the themes that we've seen already in the book of Revelation, and we're going to see more and more, is I'm going to wipe away every tear from your eye. I'm taking away all of your pain. I'm taking away all of the brokenness. Every place in which the curse finds itself, it will be reversed. Every place in which this curse that happened because of Adam and Eve's sin, every single place, I'm finding it and I'm fixing it. Your brokenness will be dealt with. Your pain will be dealt with. You will be restored. And not only that, but God deals with Adam and Eve's shame. Genesis 3, 20-21. There's this little section that just is so beautiful. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. This beautiful depiction of God covering their shame. You see, it confirms for us that the image of God is still real in Adam and Eve. The image of God is maintained for them because Eve gets a name, right? Eve gets a name. No, there is still hope. You are still made in God's image. And not only does Eve get a name, but they get a covering. God says, I will cover your shame. The place in which you felt shame, which you shouldn't have felt shame because it had nothing to do with your guilt, I'm actually going to come. I understand that you feel shame, and I'm going to cover it. Whatever you're experiencing in your life, whatever it is, no matter what it is, God can handle it. God has an answer for it. He can certainly handle the guilt that we experience in breaking God's law. But not only that, He can handle any shame that you've experienced. Whether that's from present or past trauma, whether that's from experiencing uh, desires or thoughts that you know are out of accord with the Scriptures, whether that's from uh, any sort of ways in which you feel out of place in a community or in a culture or in a city, 
Whether that's any way in which you feel like, man, this body is broken and I don't like it. Any of the doubts that you experience, any of those things, God says, come to me and I will cover them. Not only is he going to cover them, he's going to cover them, in this case, with animal skins. Now this is really significant. First of all, because later on, like right when we get to uh, the next generation, right, with, uh, with Adam and Eve's kids, they're making sacrifices. And the, and the question is, wait, God didn't tell them to make sacrifices yet. How do we... How do we they know how to do it because God did it for them. This is the first death in the scriptures. What, what did God say? When you eat of this fruit, you will die. Adam and Eve did die, but not right away. But something did die. God substituted something in their place so that they would not die. As a picture of what God's going to do with us in the person of Jesus. Jesus comes is substituted in our place. Certainly to deal with our guilt, absolutely, but also to deal with our shame. He cares about all of the shame that you would experience and he wants to come and cover it. To give a place for you to come and say, I don't know what to do with this. Come to me and I will heal you. Come to me and I will listen. Come to me and there's a safe place for you to be. Come and experience my love. This is what it means to be loved by God. He comes not just with gospel promises, but also with gospel covering for your shame. Genesis 9, 6 confirms again that the image of God is maintained. Uh, This is after the flood, right? If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands, for God made human beings in his own image. I'm not talking about the the ways in which this ethic is transformed by Jesus. We can get that in another place. But what I want to focus on is, for God made human beings in his own image. This is after the fall. The image of God is maintained. After the fall. God makes humans in his own image. He loves us, he covers our shame, and he promises to forgive our sin. One of the things that we talked about with the Imago Dei last week, right, is that we are reflecting who God is in the world, right? This doctrine of the Imago Dei means that we are made in God's image. We are like mirrors made to reflect God to the universe, made to just look up at the Lord and then reflect him everywhere we go. Well, what happens with sin is it causes the mirror to break. Causes the mirror to break and causes us to point it at anything but God and reflect one another to each other, reflect our own brokenness to the world, and to have the mirror broken, meaning it's still going to reflect, right? If you look at a broken mirror, you're still going to see things out of it, right? But it's not gonna see, you're not going to see it rightly. You're going to see that brokenness and that fracture. And that's what we are. We're like broken mirrors. But the gospel not only promises to heal our guilt or to forgive our guilt, not only promises to heal our shame, but also promises to restore us as mirrors of the image of God. 2 Corinthians 3, 
16 through 18 says this. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So all of us who have had that veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like Him as we are changed into His glorious image. You see, the reality is, we are made in the image of God, but what did we talk about last week? Jesus is the perfect image of God. And so when we come to Jesus, the Spirit of God renews us to be more and more like Jesus, more and more like the perfect image of God day by day, renewing us so that we would reflect more of who God is. How does he do that? Well, he makes you more and more like a mirror. So what is our job in that? Point the mirror at God. The point is not, hey, you got to work really, really hard. you got to do more things to make yourself more like Jesus. That doesn't sound like a very easy task. Right? Right? Because we experience all of this brokenness. We just talked about this. We experience brokenness and shame and guilt and all of these pieces. What does God expect from us? What does it say? Whenever anyone turns to the Lord. Turns. When God says, hey, where are you? Turn to Him. Just come to Him. Come near to Him. Experience intimacy and fellowship with God. And He will transform you by the Spirit of God. By His Spirit, He will transform you. Not perfectly overnight. For whatever reason, the Lord has chosen that we will continue in brokenness and our journey towards becoming more and more like Him is up and down and up and down and then down and down some more and then up a little bit, right? It's this meandering path. For whatever reason, God has said, I like things to take a long time. And that's what he's chosen to do with you. So today, you, if you're sitting here listening to this, if you're listening to it online or later as it's recorded, you are made in the image of God. And you are united with Adam and Eve in their being made in the image of God and in the fall and in their sin, and in their guilt. You now are fallen and broken. You are united with Adam in the fall. And everyone is that way. Every single person. But anyone can come and be united with Christ in the resurrection by faith. By turning to the Lord. Anyone can Be free from the effects of the fall for all eternity by turning to the Lord. By turning to the Lord, we can actually experience forgiveness for our sin. We can actually experience some of what the wholeness of the new heavens and new earth will be like. And that one day we will experience the fullness of what it means to be human in relationship with God and one another, without curse, without sin, without brokenness, without pain. We will one day experience that. And you can be freed from your shame. Again, not overnight. It's a process, a long process of growth, 
But we can be freed from our shame, not because it's not a big deal, but because Jesus actually covers it. Because Jesus actually says, come to me and hear me. And we can be then freed for all eternity to live with God, reflecting his glory in all the universe. This is the good news of the gospel. It's why it's really good news, not just that we are created in God's image, but the reality of our lives is that we are created in God's image and yet also fallen, but we are still loved by God. So, today, turn to the Lord. If you're not Christian, you're not trusting in Jesus, turn to the Lord and experience that freedom. If you are a Christian, you're trusting in the Lord, turn and face the Lord. The answer is always to turn from our sin and face the Lord and come to Him with whatever we have. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for Your grace and Your mercy to us. Lord, we come to You now knowing that we need You, that we are desperate for You, that we are broken, we are affected by the fall. Lord, and yet we know that You promise life to us. You promise eternal life to us in Jesus. God, would you come near to us that we would look to you, that we would be transformed by our experience and intimacy with you. Jesus, would you do all this for your glory, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.